Well, during the American Civil War, uh, things were so bad that the phrase going to hell in a handbasket became a popular way of expressing rapidly deteriorating conditions. And maybe that's a good way of expressing what you are seeing in our culture today. (laughs) Maybe you have been tempted to think, you know, why bother to try to make life better? Um, The worse things get, the sooner that Jesus will return. Well, last week we began a three-week series on the end times, and we began by examining some extensive teaching of Jesus on what the end times will look like. We dealt with some common misconceptions. And what we really learned was that rather than trying to figure out the day and an hour that Jesus is returning, that we are actually to be prepared and we are to be watchful. In chapter 25, Jesus told three uh, powerful parables, one after another, to demonstrate what our attitude towards the second coming is to be. Uh, The first was the parable of the ten virgins. And we discovered that five of them were prepared and five of them were not prepared. And Jesus ends with the parable, or, or with this warning, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Today we look at that second parable of Jesus, sometimes called the parable of the talents. I am reading verses 14 through 18. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So the parable begins with a a wealthy man preparing for a long journey. He calls us three stewards, his three servants, and gives each of them responsibility over a portion of his wealth. And it's a lot of money. Uh, The New International Version translates it as bags of gold, but in the Greek, uh, the word used is talent. And one talent was worth about 20 times the average salary of a day laborer, equal in today's money to about $613,000. So two talents would have been worth $1.2 million, and five talents, $3.6 million. But the point of Jesus' parable is not just about money, is it? He's talking about the the sum total of all that we've been given, our, our time and our talent and our treasure. That our entire life is a gift from God. And the point is, is that we have a responsibility to invest it well. That we all have something to offer to God. Several weeks ago, we looked at the the role of spiritual gifts. Pastor Mark spoke on that from 1 Corinthians 12. And in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, each one, every Christian, every one of us here in this room today who is following Jesus has a spiritual gift. 
and everybody has at least one and perhaps even more than one. You may not have discovered your gift yet. You may not be using it. But if you are a believer, you have a gift. Now, back when I was growing up in, in the church, it was believed, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, that the minister had all the gifts and thus did all the ministry. <laughs> now, of course, that's not only ridiculous, it's unbiblical. The Bible teaches that all Christians are ministers, whether or not we are ordained we have people in this church caring for the hungry and the homeless and, and the hospitalized, teaching uh, the Bible, leading teams and committees, discipling in small groups and, and leading in worship. We have people in, involved in ministries that I don't even know about. And they're just out there using their spiritual gifts for Christ and for the church. And everyone has a ministry. And because of that, everyone has something to offer to God. That means that every single one of us is important and essential to the proper functioning of the church. If even one of us is not using their gifts, it affects the body of Christ. When you go home today, read the, the rest of chapter 12 and you'll see what I mean. For in this marvelous design of, of God for the church, your gift complements the gifts of others. It's kind of like a puzzle that is not complete until the very last piece is inserted. And then the total picture becomes visible. And as you discover your gifts, you'll discover where and how you fit into the body of Christ. Yeah, you'll begin discovering how God wants you to invest your life. Now, we also learn something else from this passage in 1 Corinthians 12, and that is this, that we do it for others. We do it for the sake of others. Again, Paul writes, To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And so each of us has a, has a gift that is to be used to help others to, to grow in their walk with Christ. We don't use it for ourselves. I had a person who called me uh, recently who started coming to our church. And she said, I, I want to be involved. Find a place where I can help. These are the things that, that I can do. And she was serving in a ministry before she had even finished the new membership class. Nothing thrills a pastor's heart more than those kinds of phone calls. I must tell you, I feel my heart deeply moved when I reflect upon my 17 years of being your pastor, at the people who have demonstrated consistent faithfulness and steadfastness, who have used their gifts and their, and their talents to, to serve, who have carried heavy workloads here at church without wavering, without complaining, without uh, looking for strokes, without the need of fanfare. And despite the stress of busy careers and, and raising families, they have said yes when they have felt the call of God upon their lives to serve. I mean, think about it. We have Sunday school teachers, uh, small group leaders, kid rock leaders who have prepared lessons Sunday after Sunday without a break, without pay, without much recognition. We have people who day after day show up to, to make this building, to make our landscaping look, look beautiful. There are church leaders who are responsible for making decisions involving huge amounts of money who, who devote decisions, uh, time to helping us make those, those choices in our ministry. There are musicians in this church who practice and practice so it will sound good on Sunday mornings. 
We have ministry teams who are advancing the cause of Christ, preparing meals on Thursdays at our Salem campus, who are caring for people in the hospital and nursing homes. We have prayer teams who have committed themselves to pray for you daily, who, who fall on their knees and, and who knock on heaven's doors for you. We have youth who have given up entire week of their summer vacation to minister, to serve people whom they've never met. There are people who give countless hours, and the list goes on and on, of people who have discovered their gifts and are using them to make the world a better place, where God is honored and where people are helped. And when I consider how people in this church are investing their time and their talent and their treasure, I, I stand in awe. It fires me up. It makes me want to go the second mile. And it makes me so proud to be your pastor. Because you see, once we understand this, once we begin to realize that all that we have, our entire life, is a gift from God, I think the rest is easy. Because I think that's the hardest part. See, I like to think that my life is mine, that I can do with it as I please, even throw, throw it away if I so choose. But servants are, are not the owners of the talents. They are the stewards. They serve the master. They serve the owner. And so in our parable, the, the master gives each servant a different amount to invest according to their ability. See, he knows them well enough to treat them as, as individuals. To the one who's most capable, he gives five talents to the other, he gives the same freedom of opportunity, but decreases the amount according to their known skills. And to the third person, the, the, the least gifted of these three, the master still gives the same amount of responsibility, simply with a smaller amount of investment. One of the nice things about being my age is you know what you can do and you know what you can't do. <laughs> At, at 40, you begin to realize this, but you don't like it. You see friends getting bigger promotions or bigger homes, bigger cars, or however you define success, and you wonder sometimes why life is passing you by. But what I discovered, at least for myself at the age of 50, I, I began to learn to be content and happy with who I am. I remember my 50th birthday looking into the mirror and saying to myself, Well, Mark, you're no Billy Graham. And that's okay. I know that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and serving how I'm supposed to serve. And the thing is that faithfulness is rewarded. Faithfulness is simply what I do with what I have, <laughs> what God has blessed me with. We need to use what we've been given. Yeah, sometimes I wondered, God, why didn't you give me great speed so I could have played college football? <laughs> Or why didn't you make me smarter so that I could have gone to Harvard? <laughs> but it comes down to this. God gives us opportunities according to our abilities, and I'm not going to worry about what I don't have. I'm going to be faithful and make the best use of what I do have. You see, when it comes to, to how we spend our lives, we need to take a, an inventory of all that we've been given and, and simply asking ourselves, am I investing it or am I putting it into the ground? <laughs> Am I burying it? Now, my guess is that most of us here probably feel like we're either the one-talent person or the, or the two-talent person. Most of us don't feel like we're the most gifted uh, people in the world. 
But you know, the, the difference in what the one-talent guy and the two-talent guy started out with isn't all that much, but the difference in what they ended up with is substantial because the one took what they had and, and invested it, and the other took what they had and they buried it. That's the difference. I think it's also interesting in the parable that there's no guidelines, no instructions for how they're supposed to, to use this money entrusted to them. They're given complete freedom to, to do uh, 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 with these resources what they will. And the first two, they move to immediate and, and precise action upon the master's departure. And through skillful trading and investing, the, 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 the servants with the five talents and the two talents doubled their investments. I mean, that's not too bad. Wouldn't you like to be doing that today? But the servant with the one talent takes a very different course. His action, burying the money in the ground, might seem ludicrous to us today. But in Jesus' day, that was one acceptable method of safeguarding valuables. In fact, it was a longstanding tradition that anyone who buries their money that has been put in his or her care is no longer liable for its safety. And so this servant had taken the safest path available to him to ensure the money's well-being. Thus, the servant could feel secure in the knowledge that they had taken a free risk or taken a safe, risk-free course of action on their master's behalf. Or so they thought. Listen to verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. One of the first things that we hear in this is the owner was long in returning. Now we heard the same thing in, in last week's parable, that the bridegroom was a long time in coming. I, I wonder if Matthew is preparing his, his readers uh, to expect a delay in the return of Jesus. That it's not going to happen as soon as they thought. But when the master finally does return home, he wastes no time in discovering how each of his three servants have invested their talents. The first two doubled uh, their investments, and they received congratulations from the owner. He promises these two servants that they who are faithful in the little things will be in charge of much. You see, having taken both responsibility and risk, these two are now offered a, a full share in the results of their success. We are responsible to God on how we use what he's given us. We're not just accountable to ourselves. We are accountable to God and how we use what he's given us. But the third servant is a different matter. Because the moment he opens his mouth, he betrays the selfish motives that promoted his actions. He did not bury that one talent in the ground to keep the money safe, but to keep his own neck off of the chopping block. 
what might have been interpreted as responsible is now revealed by his own words as cowardly and self-serving. You see, it was his own fear that undermines the sense of accountability that his master had expected of him. Because fear will do that. I mean, we live in an age when everybody wants life to be totally safe and risk-free. Have you noticed that? Uh, here's some interesting statistics if you worry. 20% of all fatal accidents are caused by riding in a car. 17% of all accidents occur in the home. 14% of all accidents happen to people who are walking. 16% um, of all accidents happen in a plane, a train, or a boat. But only 0.001% of all accidents that lead to death happen in church. So you are very, very safe. Just keep socially distancing and you'll be okay. But does that mean the Christian life is risk-free? Well, no, absolutely not. Christians who have taken discipleship seriously have had to face lions in the Colosseum. For the first 400 years, Christianity was illegal in the empire. Stephen was stoned to death. James, the brother of John, was put to death, as was Peter and Paul. In fact, 11 of the 12 were martyred for their faith. Even John, though he escaped death, was exiled on the island of Patmos. See, sometimes I think we, we, we sign up to follow Jesus thinking that it will mean that we will never have to face difficulty or hardships or, or loss again. And then when things get tough, we, we are tempted to bail out thinking that somehow we had been misled, that we thought that Christianity would be risk-free. Now, I can't say that I have taken a lot of risks in my life, maybe a few career moves that might have seemed risky. I went paragliding once. Never do that again. That was terrifying. But I think the biggest risk I ever took was one night kneeling down in my bedroom as a young man and telling God that whatever he wanted me to do, that I would do it. In Mark chapter 10, Peter says to Jesus, We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. I wish he hadn't added that part. In the age to come, eternal life. So God is calling us to take a risk, to entrust our future into His hands. And He doesn't provide a nice road map. And you may not end up where you thought you were going. But we need to take a risk and open our life to Him, to take a risk and to use our God-given talents, however and, and, and wherever it leads us to take a risk for the sake of others, risking to love and to serve, risking rejection and ridicule, all for the sake of the gospel. It is so worth it. I think of people like Rachel Jacoby, who grew up in this church. Many of you remember uh, Rachel. 
And when Jesus really got a hold of her life, she made a decision to give up her career plans and so that she could serve the poor and, and the orphans in Mexico. Why would Rachel do that? Why would she give up the comfort of home and, and family and a good-paying job and the rewards of success to take a risk to move to another country and to do what she did? Many of you remember uh, Heather and Mike Webb. Heather grew up in this church as well. Both Heather and Mike felt a call uh, to serve as missionaries as teenagers when they were in Haiti on a work trip. And having a heart for the poor, they accepted an assignment to Tanzania where they trained and helped equip local pastors for ministry. And now, now they're serving with an organization called the Children of Promise, a Christ-centered organization that helps to sponsor children around the world just to provide for their basic needs. A few years ago, Heather wrote to me these words. She says, sometimes the will of God feels downright irresponsible. You're called to make a decision or to take a course of action that seems to make no sense. And if you do it, the people closest to you may think you're crazy. Even Jesus' family felt that way about him. But responsible irresponsibility means refusing to allow your human responsibilities to get in the way of pursuing the passions that God has put in your heart. Amen, Heather. Because Jesus makes it clear that he expects us as we await that final trumpet call to be about his kingdom business. That we cannot wait for the world, to go to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> and he calls each and every one of us to be faithful, and faithfulness means that every day we get up and we use what God has given us. Not all of us are expected to produce the same results, but all of us are expected to be equally faithful to the gifts that God has given us. So imagine what it would be like, what, how life could be different if we could anticipate his second coming by a lifetime of daily decisions that glorify and honor God, daily choices that are, are motivated by love for God and, 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 and love for others. Because we cannot sit by passively waiting for the world to come to an end so that we can go to heaven. We need to be learning. We need to be growing. We need to be investing our lives, the resources that God has given us, until he comes to take us home and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants. Let's pray. God, may we hear those words at the end of our journey as we invest the gifts, the talents that you have given us be about doing your kingdom business to serve you and to serve others. Amen.